We're working through the book of Hebrews, and uh, the last two Sundays, probably the most challenging two messages I've preached in this church in years, we're finishing that, that passage, starting at the end of chapter 5, the beginning of chapter 6. We worked through 1 through 8 in two Sunday morning messages, and now we come to verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 6. This is part 25 in Hebrews, and the title is, Through Faith and Patience, Inherit the Promises. Through Faith and Patience, Inherit the Promises. You'll see in the text where that phrase uh, comes from. Hebrews 6, starting at verse 9. Though we speak in this way, and in this way has to do with all the warnings he's just been uttering. You'll see that in a minute. Because it's been um, blunt, brutally blunt, the words that the writer of Hebrews has had. So, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I want to talk about that. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. You'd think he'd say the love you have shown to the saints in serving the saints, but that's not what he says. The love you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. There's that word. He's used it before. Um, Dull of hearing is another term he used in 511. You might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith, and here's the title of the sermon, through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray together. Your word, lamp unto our feet, light to our path, sure truth that has the power to speak to our hearts and to open up our hearts, to work in our hearts as it's the sword of the Spirit. We have lived much in this world for six days. And our minds need feeding on your word. Hallow this moment, these moments. Um, Give us taste for your word, hunger for it, desire for it. Among all the baubles offered to us, may we see your word as gold. And so bless your church in these next moments, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been here the last two Sunday mornings, the change in tone at this point is humongous. Our writer, for the, for the very first time in this letter, he calls these 
persecuted, tempted Jewish believers. He calls them beloved in verse 9. Now, there's nothing particularly striking about that at first glance. I mean, most of the letters, not all of them, but most of the epistles especially, they're sort of peppered with endearing terms. Paul does it, Peter does it, John does it. But, but I think there is an important lesson for the church if we just pause for a minute and, and think through the, the whole context of that term beloved and how it's used right at this particular point in the letter. Because the writer gives us a clue. Though we speak in this way, and what he's doing when he says that is he's referring to all the warnings he's just given these people. And yet they're still beloved. So point number one is, gospel love sees the power of God's grace being activated through warnings based on the reality of sin and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. I couldn't make it shorter. So, verse 9. Though we speak in this way, I just mentioned that, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. Consider this. Think of the words, though we speak in this way. Think of the words our writer has used just recently in the context to describe his readers. Warning them that, warning them that they might fall away through an evil, unbelieving heart. 3.12. That they might fall away from the living God. 3.12. Cautioning them so they wouldn't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, 3.13. Warning them not to fail to enter God's rest, 4.1. Warning them again about falling by the same sort of disobedience, 4.11. Telling them straight out that they had become dull of hearing, 5.11. Telling them clearly they were still... Infants and unskilled in the word of righteousness, 5.13. This is not how you please a congregation. Warning them it can get to a point where it's impossible to renew some people to repentance, 6.6. Warning them that if the rain of God's grace keeps falling and it produces nothing but thorns and thistles, there's nothing left in the end but to be burned, 6.8. Wow. This is where he's been going. This is, what he's been, this is what he's been saying to these people. And then suddenly, verse 9, these same people, beloved. Well, what is he? Is this guy just a politician of some kind? Or, you know, what's going on here? And I'm saying there's something profoundly important to be learned for the church in this present culture. Of, of uh, uncritical tolerance and, and uh, morally neutered acceptance. These red-hot, at times blistering hot warnings are not a sign that these 
Jewish Christians were unloved or less loved than if these warnings had never been issued. Not at all. These, these warnings are the proof that these Jewish Christians were, were all the more deeply loved because the love they received through this letter was gospel love. Love driving to repentance and grace and mercy. What I mean by that is, is the confidence our writer has of this, better things. The confidence that our writer has of better things for these persecuted Christians is a confidence that's, that's based on the, the positive effect of all those warnings, those blunt, stern, harsh warnings. He trusts that they will make good use of those warnings. That's the most important part in this first point. Our writer has confidence in the ultimate progress of these people and their faithfulness because, because he believes these severe warnings will be used by the Spirit of God to keep these people alert to the dangers to correcting their immaturity, to sharpen their hearing. So, so while that grace is not irresistible, God's keeping grace wasn't contrary to those warnings. It, it was the fruit of those stern warnings as they were heeded. Warnings aren't the opposite of a grace-filled message. Warnings are the source of a grace-filled message. And here's the reason I think that matters. I think this matters because there's such a blind move of much of the evangelical church into a kind of, into a kind of uh, cafe, sandals, Christianity whose ultimate expression of gospel love is just sort of peaceful non-collision with the culture around. Let's just all get along. The idea is, we in the church, we in the church are at fault. We somehow betray a, a true demonstration of Christ if we come out being against anything that has broad acceptance in the culture around us. That, that we might look ridiculous if we're found just to be shouting warnings from the rooftops. How relevant can we look doing that in a world like ours? They're going to write us off. They're never going to be attracted to a message like that. What's worse, there might be some who are professing Christians who do some of these things and our warnings will only either anger them or discourage them and there can't be anything Christ-like in that. So surely confronting professing Christian people can't be helping them and it can't possibly be loving them. That's the idea. And on the surface of it all, it feels, it just makes sense. I mean, people don't like to be scolded. They like to be embraced. The logic feels fine. And it kind of has the appearance of holding together. It just sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And then the problem is, then you pick up 
any New Testament on the planet and you start reading. And, and every divinely inspired writer packs every New Testament document written to and for Christians, saved by grace, all of those letters are packed with warnings. Oodles and oodles of warnings. Under the covenant of grace in the New Testament. There are warnings about idolatry. Warnings about materialism. Warnings about fidelity and infidelity. Warnings about lying. Warnings about homosexuality. Warnings about lust. Warnings about prayerlessness. Warnings about laziness. Warnings about drunkenness. The whole church needs to start thinking this issue through again. Warnings about not faithfully attending a local church. Warnings about loving this present world too much. Warnings about slander. Warnings about unkind speech. Warnings about not honoring parents. Do you see how long this list could be? The point here is not just that there is instruction about these things. That's not even close to the point. The point is in all of these passages isn't just instruction for holy living... The point is there is warning about failing in these things and the consequences of it. And the challenging point here is since the fall, lives can't be made secure in grace just by positive promises alone. We need to be warned. And every writer in your New Testament does it. Including Jesus. We didn't write any of the New Testament, but his words are recorded. Here's the unique feature about gospel warnings, like our writer of Hebrews does. The reason we need warnings is gospel warnings compare. They compare the results of obedience when the costs of obedience seem too high. Warnings compare the cost of following Christ with the cost of disobedience when it might seem easier at the moment. And warnings come and say, don't go here, look what happens. So warnings have the value of contrasting the results of different courses of action. Without gospel warnings, many people find obedience difficult only because the cost of disobeying Jesus was never fully laid out for them. So Jesus comes on the scene and he says what kind of a knucklehead he didn't say that goes out and starts building a tower without figuring out whether he has enough to finish it. Right? What's Jesus doing? He's saying think about think about where this is going. Who goes out with a little army and he's going to start fighting an enemy and never bothers to sit down and say whoops they have a hundred times more soldiers than we do. What's likely to happen if he keeps going down that road? See, that's what warning does. Warnings are not contrary to grace. 
Warnings are the source of gospel grace. Gospel warning is the effort of the whole New Testament to contrast the results of different courses of action. And the, the, church, the church simply must apply this point if she's going to be a New Testament church. This means when you stop speaking to a culture with scripturally based warning, you are not magnifying grace. It means you have stopped offering genuine grace. It means all you've got left is tolerance, which will never lead anyone to repentance and life. This is a terrible temptation for the church. Once it discovers there are many inside and outside the church who only want God's grace on their terms, non-gospel terms, mere acceptance. And, and here's the problem. This is no longer the gospel. It's no longer gospel grace. It's empty human acceptance. Not the divine grace of repentance and conversion and new life. I think we should accept it and face it. It is never easy to offer truly divine gospel grace to self-centered people. They don't like being told they need to repent. They will love any institution that tells them God loves them just the way they are. But, but that church is not loving those people. You go to the doctor and you have leukemia and the doctor knows it but doesn't want to upset you. Just, just take a couple aspirin every few days. It'll be fine. Is that loving? Is that a loving course of action? That's what our writer of Hebrews is doing. He spent three chapters warning these people of all sorts of things and then he says, beloved, beloved. Point number two. This one is briefer. I don't know if you're a Christian. I don't know if you're a Christian. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Here's where I get this idea. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook two things. Your work. That's a strange word in a gospel of grace, isn't it? Your work and love that you have shown to the saints. I mean, anybody can claim to be a Christian. I, I get it. Our writer here is dealing with something else. He's dealing with the things that belong to salvation. Things that belong to salvation. So then there are two things described in these verses that belong to salvation. That is, they are um, the DNA of a genuine saving experience. First, there is what our writer describes as your work in verse 10. 
That's right there, if you can see through all that. And second, there is the love that you have shown for his name, serving the saints. So first, the work. Things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Singular, not works, not a list of things, but work, singular rather than plural. So it, it's, not, it's not like all the good deeds. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm saying that's not what's being talked about here. But your work on earth. It's, it's the mission of your life. Put it that way. Singular. The call of your life. The main course of your life here on earth. It, it what's, it's what makes your life tick. What makes your life tick. It's, it's the full understanding of your, your true self. You put your feet over the edge of the bed. You get up in the morning and you say to yourself, why, why? Did God give me this day? One Christian in a thousand asks that when he or she gets out of bed. Why did God keep me through the night and why do I have this day? That's your work. Paul uses almost the exact same words. Work and the love. He uses those same... I just want to show you that this is not some isolated little text that Corbin's ringing a sermon out of. Look at first... Here Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Remembering before our God and Father... Look at your... It's similar. Your work of faith, right? And the labor of love. Steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You, you, you do, of course, many things. We all do. We're busy. I'm not talking about that. The issue is, why are you here as a Christian? As a disciple of Christ, what are you chiefly about in this world? What is your mission before God? Put it in today's terminology. What is the, what is the orientation of your life? Now that you are in Christ Jesus. So, so we're, dealing with, we're dealing with your center in these words. Is your work. They, they, knew, they knew what they were about as followers of Jesus. A lot of people don't. I go, well, I go to church. Once in a while, I... I I try and read my Bible once in a while. I, I don't swear at my wife. I, you know, Christian. Don't overcomplicate this. There are really only two points in that description of your work. Let me, let me just be real clear. Things that belong to salvation, he's going to talk about. Let me go back to that text. Let me clean this up. You're going to be so impressed with the kind of stuff. 
Okay, so we're, at, we're talking about the things that belong to salvation. I said there were two. Your work and the love. I'm just simplifying. Right now we're looking at this. The work. There's really only two points to remember in this consideration of, he says, your work. First, your mission for Christ in this world, my mission for Christ in this world, and it's not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian, just as you are. My mission for Christ in this world is my main daily assignment. Your mission for Christ in this world is your main daily assignment. That's why it's called your work. So, so it can never be something part-time. It can never be something taken up occasionally and set aside occasionally. It's not a portion of your life. It's your work. It's the work you are on earth for. The second idea in that work word... If he means anything at all, he means things that belong to salvation. That's what we're talking about. I don't know if you're a Christian. People who follow Jesus, it means it's the main calling of their life. And second, that it takes constant effort. Wouldn't you get that idea from work? Constant effort. You will always... As long as you follow Jesus in this world... Think about it. He's writing to these persecuted... Jewish Christians who are being lured back under the old covenant, rejecting Christ as the fulfillment of it all. They're being pulled back. And so the writer writes to them the things that belong to salvation. He says, you keep working at following Jesus. You can't drift. You will always have to be at pains doing it. Because everything in the present culture, just as it was in the New Testament... Everything in today's culture, just as it was in the New Testament, presses against the forming of Christ in my life. Everything presses against it. That's why the activity of divine grace in human experience is described as work. Diligence that drives the whole life to Christ when there is tremendous cost in doing so. If that seems like a foreign idea, let me just show you quickly. Every letter in the New Testament makes the same link between diligence and grace. Let me just show you a couple. Here's Peter. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more, see this word? Diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided, in what way? Well, in this way. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend to always remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I'm going to remind you. And, and the really interesting thing, you see that 10th that verse, 
where he talks about the need for diligence and practicing these qualities. The, the interesting thing about that is, if you were to go back in this letter and see the context, it's a surprising one. Here's, here's the context of Peter's remarks about being all the more diligent. Look what he says. He says, um, May grace and peace be multiplied. In the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us, look at this, his precious and very great promises. Okay, now, Pastor Don, now we're talking grace. So that through them... You may become partakers, see? Partakers of a divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every, what? They go together. They go together. Remember where we are. We're considering, how to know you're a Christian, point number two. We're considering the two signs of things that belong to salvation. They're in that 10th verse. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, the love you have shown for his name in serving the saints. So the two evidences are your work, that's what we've just looked at, and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. That's where we're turning our attention now. That second, that second thing that belongs to salvation. The love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. Now, you can see very real examples of that in that letter to these Hebrew believers. Look what they were doing. You can, I just put together 10.34 and 13.3 because they kind of have the same subject in mind. So our writer writes to these Christians and he says, For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully, joyfully, this is weird, accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So their property wasn't abiding and they received vivid proof of that because they were kicked off their land and out of their homes. How would, you, how would you feel? You go home today after church. You can't get into your house. Where would you go? It's been taken. Seized. What are you going to do? See, these people, it wasn't a theory. These Christians faced that. can't access your finances, your bank accounts. Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 13.3, remember those who are, here it is again, in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. And so you, you, look, you look carefully at the motive behind the compassionate treatment of these imprisoned Christians. 
The same motive is listed in the last half of each of those descriptions that I just read. Why, why these Jewish Christians were so compassionate to those who were mistreated, had their property plundered, were put in prison. Why these Jewish Christians were so compassionate toward them is, is clearly stated. In 1034, it's, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. That's right there. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. That's why they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. That's why they were compassionate. And in 13.3, it's, since you also are in the body. Now you go back to that Hebrews 6.10, the things that belong to salvation. And you see why he says, your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. This isn't just humanitarian relief. It's not what this is. That's fine. It's good. But that's not what's being described here. Humanitarian love can be shown by anyone that still has just the remnants of a compassionate heart from creation, even through the fall. Atheists can be humanitarian. Kingdom love looks the same from the outside, but it has a distinct and different motive. It sacrifices, it sacrifices in loving service, it sacrifices from the security of a better possession, right there, and it remembers its responsibility even to the most needy and persecuted in the body, since you also are in the body, And its ultimate concern isn't human recognition or human appreciation or a tax receipt. Uh, true Christians continue to show love for the, for the glory of Christ's name. The love that you have, 610, you've shown it for his name in serving the saints. So, so consider this. There's a reason. There's a reason the New Testament consistently pleads for faithfulness to one local church body of believers. You, you won't see the needs. You won't see the hurting needs of fellow Christians watching a service streamed on the internet. You won't feel the weight of people suffering in your local congregation studying your Bible in your bedroom at home and praying in your prayer closet. You won't feel the weight of the hurting in a local body if you kind of hop around to whatever church you feel the Spirit is leading you to on any given Sunday. I can't believe people still fall for that. God places all of us, 
with varying levels of prosperity and circumstances. God places all of us so this, this practical grace of effective Christian love, it can grow and develop over time with discernment, with accountability. Without the local church, this grace that is vital to what our writer says, things that belong to salvation, 6-9, without the local church, that doesn't have a responsible way of happening and growing. Now notice how those two evidences, your work and the love, notice how they are tightly tied to the promise of God and his continuing faithfulness. In that 10th verse. For God is not unjust. So as to overlook. Your work. And the love. That you have shown for his name. In serving the saints. As you still do. Why this reminder? Why this reminder? Well. First. My work in serving Christ and my love for others will always face opposition. Always. My own laziness will constantly make excuses. Or my own busyness will constantly distract my effort into less important ends and make them seem more important. Self-love is easy for me. Christian love isn't. And so there's this promise. I know all of God's promises about seeking his kingdom first. I know Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. I'm just like you. I believe those promises on a certain level. And so do you. It is better to give than to receive. I believe it because I, I know Jesus doesn't lie and that just has to be true. I'm not crazy about it. Everybody understand? So many promises that I know are true, I say I believe but they don't always ring true the way my present desires and circumstances and financial statements, the way those things ring true. I mean, they are real. And that can keep me from receiving all that God has for me. And so I see in this text, this 10th verse, that... Pastor Don still needs to be reminded. Don. Life isn't always great. Sometimes you're the bug and sometimes you're the windshield. But God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and love. You won't always feel it. And you won't always see it. I like this. God doesn't overlook anything. 
Not a thing. Point number three. That leads into this last point. The last point. Everyone said? Amen. You will inherit the promises even though you can't yet see them. You see this in 11 and 12? And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, I want to talk about that, inherit the promises. We've already seen how sluggishness, verse 12, it comes from being dull of hearing, 511. Remember, dullness of hearing is evidenced by any failure to move beyond wherever I presently am in my walk with Christ. And our writer explains now why Christians sometimes reach these stages of dullness, sluggishness, I want to just be real blunt and straightforward as we wrap up. We don't always experience, and we won't always experience, the same awareness of dramatic change that we once felt in coming to Christ initially. Did everybody understand that sentence? Hello? Okay. That's why, if you'll notice, our writer doesn't just urge earnestness on these Jewish Christians. He very distinctly calls them to show the, see this, same earnestness. Same as what? Same as what? He means, he means the same earnestness they had when they first came to Christ. But there's a problem with that. When these Jewish Christians first came to Christ, it was all new. Every change at the beginning of your Christian life feels like a radical change. There was that sudden discovery of Jesus as the promised Messiah, the Christ who fulfilled all the old covenant, all the sacrifices, all the works. And then persecution came. That's what happened. That's why we have this letter. Questions arose. Accusations started to fly. Houses started to be taken. Let me, let me tell you something. Maintenance is never as exciting as discovery. Right? Maintenance is never as exciting as discovery. The kind of development these Christians, and most of us here today, the kind of development we face is the development of growth rather than the development of birth. It's a development of what the writers call the walk of faith. You know what walking is, right? Take this foot, put it in front of that foot, and then 
Here's the exciting part. You get to do the same thing with the other foot. You put it in front of this one. Guess what you do next? You take this foot and you put it in front of that one. Now, why do you suppose almost every epistle describes the Christian life as a walk of faith? What do you think was in their heads? So, here's, here's the final exhortation of this text. Remember how most growth occurs for maturing Christians. I'll show you how. Let me clean this up. Here's how it happens. Say it with me. Through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Inherit means you don't, you don't have them all yet. Right? That's what an inheritance is. Yes. Yes, there are seasons of special grace and touch. Praise God for them. There could be more for sure with fresh waiting on God and deeper repentance. But the usual stance of the maturing walk with Jesus is, well, it's faith and patience. How long are you going to need those? Well, till Jesus comes or you die. Faith and patience. Faith and patience. Faith is trusting, believing. Patience is waiting for what you're trusting and believing in because it's not there yet. Faith and patience. Faith and patience. Faith. Sounds like a walk, doesn't it? Faith, patience. Faith, patience. Faith, patience. James 5, 7, and 8. Be patient. Oops. I don't know. Be patient. Therefore, brothers, how long? Well, till the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it. Till it receives the early and the late range. You also... Be patient. Are you seeing a theme here? That's how, by the way, that is how you establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. So there is a crop growing, people. For those who continue in faith. And you can establish your hearts, James says. Here's where we land. Lots of warning in that Hebrews text. We spent weeks going over them. Blistering warnings. Frightful warnings. That is not the opposite of grace. That is the foundation for repentance and grace. We need warning. Never let someone tell you that the church will be more relevant to the culture if warning ceases. Jesus comes on the scene. You have his... A few references to him growing up. Very few. He's baptized. Starts his ministry. And you find the first words out of his mouth. The first words out of, that part the lips of Jesus as he starts his ministry. The incarnate son of God. And the first thing he says isn't good morning or hello. 
the first word that parses, that comes out from his mouth is repent. Repent. He's as relevant as anybody I know, Jesus Christ. The things that belong to salvation, your work, your labor, the chief call on your life, do you think about it? Your job is what you do. I'm talking about, I'm talking about who you are. And the love that you show for the saints. And what makes you show love for the saints is you're part of a body with them. And you know you have a better possession coming down the road. And so you can be generous. World Impact Sunday comes. You can do more than you think you can do because your future is secure in Christ. That's, that's, the, that's the message there. And we all have to just keep going in this. There isn't something more exciting just around the corner. There are whole churches that thrive on that kind of deception. Right around the corner, there's going to be, oh, there's going to be a great here and a great there and something special here. Faith, patience. Faith, patience. And there's a crop. There's an inheritance for the faithful. And everyone said? Let's pray.